This podcast was recorded on March 15, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, well, welcome to the latest episode of The Sherman Show. Um, Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, today we're talking to Bill Campbell, who's a portfolio manager here at DoubleLine. So welcome Welcome. to The Sherman Show, Bill. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, we want to start off by talking about a little bit about your background, why you're qualified to be on The Sherman Show today, and uh, (laughs) what we're going to talk about. So maybe you can give a little bit about who is Bill Campbell and uh, what, what brings you uh, the pedigree to uh, be here as a, as a guest on the show today? Well, that's a pretty high bar you set, uh, <laughs> so hopefully I can uh, get over that in a few sentences. Um, no, I've been at Double Line for about five years, still a little under right now, and uh, I've mostly been working on the emerging markets and international teams. Uh, my focus has always really been global markets. I've always had an interest in uh, you know global the global economy and uh, just looking at markets in general and, you know, growing up, politics, uh, geopolitics were always a source of discussion around the dinner table. And I think that, you know, lent nicely into my academic career. And then I luckily uh, started my uh, investment career off at John Hancock Financial, uh, working for um, the chief investment strategist, uh, Bob Bretano. He put me on his global investment strategies group and uh that really was a great fit. And uh, ever since then, I've been working in uh, one capacity or another in uh, global fixed income. Uh, most recently, uh, before joining Double Line, I was at a uh, small global macro hedge fund where we focused on uh, primarily long short interest rate strategies, long short currency strategies, and uh, long short sovereign credit. Well, that sounds like you got a few qualifications here. Uh, maybe a little overqualified uh, for just this uh, this basic little podcast here. Uh, but um, you talked about geopolitical or geopolitics at the dinner table. Um, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> it was I was a strange upbringing, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it was always interesting. <laughs> right? No, I mean, uh, it, it, it gives some perspective here. But let's talk about geopolitics today. Um, I don't think really we're, relevant. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we're short on any of them around around the world, uh, even here in the U.S. Uh, what do you see as kind of uh, what are geopolitical hotbeds today out there? What are things that you're worried about um, that could disrupt the global economy today? Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. I think that uh, it's getting down to the heart of, uh, you know, where the global uh, macro environment has moved uh, pretty much post-Trump. But I think Brexit kind of started this mm-hmm. uh, movement towards more of a populist, nationalist sentiment, uh, you know, across the globe. 
And uh, what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, there are a lot of electorates uh, across the globe that are focused more on domestic issues. And they're, uh, you know, looking to protect uh, their local economies, uh, you know, at the risk of, uh, you know, uh, or, or at the detriment of, uh, let's call it emerging market economies, but the global economy in general. Uh, you know, the flip side of that, uh, or I guess, you know, what we're really seeing now, especially in the United States, is uh, now the not only is the um, economic focus moving back to domestic, but, you know, we're also seeing international security focuses move back to domestic. You're seeing in Europe uh, a real pushback against the migration that we've seen from war zones such as Syria. In the United States, uh, the new administration's looking at uh, having other countries take uh, more of an active role in their uh, domestic security. And uh, this is, I guess, the roundabout way to getting uh, to the answer to your, you know, what your question mm -hmm. was. But uh, when we look at that, it starts to create some vacuums. And uh, the two big ones that uh, jump out to me uh, in the geopolitical front are, you know, first uh, in the South China Sea and in Asia especially. Uh, you know, we see a lot of uh, geopolitical, uh, you know, turmoil and, you know, it's kind of like the oven has been turned on. Uh, the Japanese are very concerned about the Chinese policy of, you know, becoming more outwardly aggressive. Mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese are probably going to be looking at some point in the near future to change their constitution to allow them to, you know, start um, building up their military and defense forces. And, you know, in an area that's dominated, uh, you know, right, right now by Chinese geopolitics, I, I think that's, that's a hot spot. Uh, we're seeing uh, on the Korean Peninsula, North Korea, uh, you know, is becoming extremely outwardly aggressive. Um, the, you know, normally in the past when North Korea has become, you know, a lot more aggressive in, uh, you know, their military activity. It's been uh, is a way for them to try to get more international aid. Uh, right now, I think that maybe that's becoming a little bit less clear. Maybe they, you know, might have, uh, you know, some other ambitions. Um, but what we're, you know, what we're seeing across just the Asian, uh, you know, the, the whole Asian continent is, uh, you know, what I what I was just saying, it's an increase, uh, you know, the heat is being turned up in that oven. Mm -hmm. uh, the other you know, geopolitical hotbed that we're seeing is, uh, you know, more on, uh, you know, the east, uh, in the eastern uh, side of Europe with Russia. Right. Uh, obviously, Putin's got, you know, his uh, goal of becoming more of a geopolitical uh, power player. He's getting involved in Syria. It looks like he, well, he has been involved in Syria. Now it looks like he might be interested in getting involved more, uh, you know, in the activities of Libya, which, uh, you know, could have serious implications uh, for oil and oil right, prices, right. which is, I know, Sherman, your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, you know, th those are kind of the, I guess, the, you know, high level issues that, uh, you know, are jumping to mind. But on a country by country basis, I think the focus of people inward, uh, you know, is starting to become a problem. And you're seeing, you know, tensions build up in countries, you know, and I, I think we can just look at Europe and see that, you know, country by country, uh, you're seeing internal tensions, you know, build up. 
And I, I think that it had its beginnings in, uh, you know, kind of a disparity on the economic front. And, uh, you know, certain people were left out of the gains of globalization, but it's really starting to, uh, you know, become more of a, you know, just a geopolitical issue. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty interesting because if we transition that somewhat to markets, you know, you're talking about, you know, on the geopolitical front, the inward looking, more nationalist, local, domestic kind of focus and less on the globalization front. And so, you know, we use a saying around here thinking about bull markets and bear markets is that bull markets are built upon cooperation. Right, uh, yeah, you got to be associated yeah. that goal. And bear market markets are usually uh, signaled by divisiveness. And so, if you have all of this geopolitical risk out there and this, um, you know, focus on one's own personal interests, what does that say about the outlook for markets? And again, I'm not trying to lead lead the questioner here, <laughs> or, or, or um, you know, to, to try yeah, to take account. Yeah, leading the question, yeah, although I just did it. Going. Yeah, but ultimately, it's. Uh, does this does this signal that it's going to be more challenging on the global front, or you know, again, does it just create significant opportunity set? Well, both. I, I think it, in the short run, uh, you know, you might see some interesting pockets, uh, you know, develop as um, you know policy focuses internally. There may be you know one-off uh, you know interesting investments that uh, you know develop from that as uh, company as I'm sorry as countries try to shrug off, uh, you know, some of the, you know, geopolitical concerns. Maybe in Europe, there's a little bit less focus on austerity, and you try to see a little bit more push to uh, policy supporting the domestic economies. But ultimately, uh, when we have a shrinking of cooperation, as you put it, and deglobalization, uh, I think the pie is ultimately not going to grow, uh, you know, and in a situation where we have populations continuing to increase, uh, that ultimately leads to a decrease in the standard of living and it leads to a decrease in growth. We see that uh, in the estimates from the IMF when we look at the world, uh, you know, economic outlook and their estimates of growth, they're pretty flat. Yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of a, you know, of a cyclical pickup that we're seeing from a weak year in 2016 to potentially a little bit of a cyclical rebound in 2017, but uh, it's not extreme. And uh, going forward, uh, the growth outlooks uh, look tepid. Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk about increased population, um, you know, the, the lack of participation in increasing wealth over that, you get to kind of this Malthusian type of conclusion, right? <laughs> Where we're talking about not enough resources to go around. And so what do you think about in the, uh, comparing the emerging world to the developed world? And obviously there's a huge population growth and, and more growth in the global economy is dependent or has been dependent on EM. But if we have this kind of divisiveness and, um, you know, uh, geopolitical risk out there, uh, where do you kind of favor, you know, over the next, you know, let's say three to five years, where's that catalyst going to come from um, in the global markets? And they come, you know, we have this shrinking labor force here in the U.S. or It's not shrinking, but you have a sh shrinking birth rates, I should say. Um, and you have really tepid growth from, from population. What does that say in the kind of relative value of estimating where the opportunity set will be in DM versus EM, developed markets versus emerging markets? Yeah, that's markets. a complicated question, yeah. but uh, maybe to take it piece so by wanted, piece. We wanted to take yeah, your pedigree up front, so we knew you could tackle the, the complicated ones here. So uh, I think it's a very interesting question, and uh, it's clear to me that the net beneficiary of globalization 
has been uh, emerging markets. Um, and what we've seen is emerging markets have moved up the value chain and have been able to increase their standard of living tremendously off globalization, but it's mostly been driven through the trade channel. And now that we're seeing an increase in nationalism and protectionism, uh, that starts to create some headwinds. So what we need to do is the second level of analysis and say in emerging markets, which countries have developed the capacity uh, to generate local incomes to the point that they can that it supports local consumption. You need to see uh, local consumers, uh, you know, really uh, develop and uh, you know become a more meaningful piece of uh, you know that global economic pie rather than uh, you know relying so heavily on the trade channel, mm -hmm. the developed markets to buy right. all sorts of cheap goods. Now, luckily. Uh, Globalization has been going on, uh, you know, long enough that yeah. uh, we've seen, you know, incomes increase across the board. And you're starting to see that in a lot of emerging markets. And, uh, you know, we have a very, uh, as you know, our very capable, uh, you know, process here that uh, goes through and evaluates where we see, you know, opportunities in countries and, uh, you know, specific sectors that we can start to take advantage of. Uh, you know, these countries that have migrated up the credit curve, that have migrated up the value chain, that have migrated up, uh, you know, the income uh, levels as mm -hmm. well. Um, so all of that, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, kind of a long winded way of saying uh, those countries that uh, have used the increase in uh, income and national wealth mm -hmm. to build out a domestic economy and a domestic consumer should be better placed, uh, you know, than others who may have suffered from some Dutch disease or, you know, possibly squandered the wealth. Uh, in developed markets, I'm afraid uh, I am a little bit uh, more concerned about the long-term picture. You mentioned the demographic issue that, uh, you know, we have an aging population that needs to be taken care of. And, uh, you know, a lot of entitlements and benefits that have been promised over the years are coming, are starting to come due and will continue to come due. Uh, now, in order to uh, really, I think, get us out of that, there needs to be some sort of catalyst, and it needs to be an external catalyst. Um, it may be that uh, these emerging market economies, such as China, all of a sudden become uh, a massive consumer like the U.S. has been. Uh, Which has I, been their goal for a long period of time. It's been to, their to goal. To try to switch yeah. from that. A country in transition mean, almost as well. Ex exactly. Yeah. The, well, they, and countries that have transitioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I if we can see uh, a not only uh, for let's call it, let's just take China for example, if we can see consumption pick up to the levels of the United States, uh, you know that would be net beneficial to the entire global GDP pie. Um, the other thing that I was, uh, you know, that I keep going back to is there needs to be another catalyst that, in my view, is going to encourage a capex cycle. Uh, you know, and that has to come through the technology chain. And I, I'm, you know, unfortunately, I'm not creative enough to see exactly what it is. Maybe it's a biotechnology. Uh, you know, if it's a new, we've really moved forward on the communication technology front. But when you think about, you know, CapEx, it's really been weak when yeah. we look at, you know, post the global financial crisis. But companies have held fairly high levels of uh, cash. So it's not that they have lacked cash and lacked the ability to tap markets to, you know, get financing for uh, a new CapEx cycle. I think it's been a lack of, you know, a need. 
So the two ways to you know really get that capex going and develop markets, in my view, is again getting a increased global consumer that increases in demand and forces uh, companies to invest for the long term to meet that demand, or you get a new technology that now we need to go ahead and uh, you know replace every uh, computer on uh, you know in our office with whatever that next technology is, or you know the uh, all hospitals need to be you know replaced with a new technology you know w- with whatever that would be. Sort of like the kickstart that we saw in the the late '90s and early 2000s here in in the U.S. Right? Exactly. Exactly. That's, the difficult part is just finding that catalyst, as you, as you mentioned here. Well, so. we need it. I mean, I think that you know, lacking that, uh, you know, it's uh, there. There are some significant headwinds that uh, you know we're going to be facing. Well, that's the last time we've actually ran a surplus here in the U.S. Was actually the invention of the internet, new technology, and that's what I've been telling clients for you know last you know five to six years is that if you you know in order to kind of balance the budget or at least decrease these deficits. We need another Al Gore, right? We got to create the. We got to need someone who's going to go out there and create the internet, or uh, maybe well, that's maybe, an interesting attribute. Yeah, some people say maybe it's Elon Musk that's going to do it with this hyperloop and things, but um, yeah. that that is quite interesting. Maybe with the batteries, I don't know about the hyperloop. Yeah, the ba- the batteries. <laughs> again, I don't have the the creativity issue. I'm, I'm too uh, myopic in some of these things, but uh, yeah, definitely the battery technology seems seems quite interesting too. I mean, I think one of the issues there, though, that um, have been stunting investment in, in companies or just CapEx in general is just the lack of utilization, at least here, capacity utilization here in the U.S. of existing equipment. So, I mean, it's it's one of those challenges, I think, perhaps, I mean, maybe we can broadly generalize it as a developed market versus EM type of uh, scenario as well. But until we can overcome that and then somewhat indirectly, I guess, productivity as well. Yeah, so so we talk, you know, we've had the focus for many years. I mean, you're a global macro guy. We, we do a lot of macro work and thinking about these things. And so I guess, you know, what what do you see as the future role for central banks? I mean, we've had massive intervention post-global financial crisis. Um, obviously, they're necessary to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, cool the economy, gets it too hot, you know, try to stimulate it when it's too uh, tepid or lukewarm. Uh, or even chilly at times. But uh, what do you see as the future role for some of these uh, central banks, too, in the, at least in the developed market? Are we too reliant on them? Um, you know, How far can monetary policy take us? Uh, it, well, it, I mean, that it, we're going to go down the rabbit hole, I'm afraid, on this one. <laughs> okay. But uh, I, I think the, the role of central banks is, uh, you know, ultimately their role should be to try to guide the economy to... Uh, you know, a place where, you know, we, well, I guess it's, uh, this is going to sound cliche, where we do see full employment. But right. uh, the, the problem is you can't just rely on central banks to be the panacea to, you know, creating growth and get, getting optimal growth and, you know, being that um, match that's going to, you know, ignite that next wave of uh, either consumption or investment. We really need to, you know, look at other policies, uh, you know, and not just fiscal policy. I mean, that's just kind of, uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in the Keynesian, you know, dig a hole and fill it in, and that's going to help. That creates GDP, though. Um. Well, 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 but, but, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's GDP. <laughs> but if you're going to spend it, spend it wisely. Why not spend? You, you have DARPA, so you have NASA. There are lots of, you know, a lot out of a lot of these government uh, programs. You've had technologies come out that have boosted, uh, you know, 
productivity, which is, uh, you know, one of the major issues and, you know, created that catalyst for kind of that next big CapEx wave that, you know, it's those ideas, um, you know, and it's really you need to have it. I think the ideas are a public good. So you do need to fund that. And, uh, you know, through uh, STEM education and then, uh, you know, funding things, whether it's through the Defense Department or it's through NASA or it's, you know, through just research grants, uh, you know, to particular sciences, all of this is laying the seeds for, you know, the next wave of increasing the standard of living of, you know, everyone on the globe. But I think about Bell Labs, right, how how pivotal they were with, you know, advancement of technology, right? Do we really have those kind of think tanks as much in the U.S. Um, that that are you know? It just seems like every great idea you know for thirty or forty years came out of Bell Labs, right? Yeah. I, well, look, I think that it, you know coming out of Silicon Valley, we have some very interesting uh, you know things, and a lot has been um, put onto uh, the private sector. Uh, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting in this uh, you know research and idea generation, it, it really has unfortunately been pushed to the private sector. Uh, fortunately, we have people like Elon Musk who, yeah. you know, are really ta- pushing the envelope and coming out with some unique, interesting, uh, you know, things that could potentially lead us, uh, you know, to that next big boost in standard of living. Uh, but again, I think that, uh, you know, with any research endeavor, failure is going to be 90, 95, 99 percent of the time. So it's a public good that I think you really, uh, you know, need to see support of governments behind it. And it was really unfortunate that, you know, some of these budgets, uh, you know, were cut, um, you know, in the past decade. And, you know, I think that uh, if we're thinking about future policy, uh, instead of trying to just provide cheap money, uh, you know, maybe we should be thinking about, uh, you know, funding bright individuals who are creatively trying to come up with, um, you know, what could be the next, uh, you know, thing that makes all of our lives even better than they already are. Yeah. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit for uh, for the next couple minutes, if you can indulge me. So global economy, global economics, that's sort of... Uh, what we've been talking about today, and you cover a lot of ground, both figuratively and literally, you know, by definition there. How do you approach this? I mean, what do you use some type of framework? Do you look, break it down into the regions? Do you just get into the countries? Or, I mean, just how do you evaluate, you know, the, the, the areas that you do? I mean, it's a great question because uh, – with it, it, I think it's very easy to get lost in the forest, uh, especially when looking at global macro. And uh, the way that uh, we like, uh, and again, when I say we, I'm referring to Double Line and uh, you know the international team. Uh, we we ter- try to take a little bit more of a systematic approach where. You know, we understand that no two countries are alike, no two people are alike, no two companies are alike, but there are common factors that influence everyone. So when we start our research, we like to start on an individual country basis and break out just the common elements that we think, uh, you know, are going to drive the overall economic picture for that country and allow for comparison, uh, you know, across what seemingly would be very different countries, especially if you're looking at a developed market versus an emerging market. So those, we roughly break it down into five factors. Uh, You know, the first 
once a structural factor where we kind of take a, a step back and look at the overall structure of the economy. Uh, you know, what is the political structure? Do we have elections coming up? Uh, you know, what does the current fiscal uh, picture look like? Are they, is the uh, economy, is the country in a deficit situation? Are they in a surplus situation? And what's their trajectory? Uh, how much debt, you know, uh, do they have both in the public sector and the private sector? And, you know, do we think that, you know, maybe there's some excesses that have built up, uh, you know, in those? And, you know, generally, uh, you know, do we think that this, you know, what do we think of the country's institutions? And, uh, you know, it's, general, uh, you know, market makeup as well. Do they have deep liquid markets or is this, uh, you know, a place that, you know, maybe is a little bit, uh, you know, earlier on the development scale. Uh, then we always look at growth, uh, you know, and not only, you know, what's the current GDP been, but what are the main drivers? What are the, you know, what were the catalysts to growth? What are, you know, the impediments to growth and what does it look like? Is this an economy that's, you know, driven by internal consumption or is this an externally driven, export driven economy? Um, you know, that's it, that's very good to get to know, uh, you know, and have a good sense of because uh, when you start thinking about global factors, uh, you know, you can you can start to piece out uh, which countries will be insulated versus which countries may be more affected by uh, global economic events. Uh, we also look at inflation, uh, again, the general makeup of inflation uh, from core to headline. But really, uh, you know, do we think that, you know, wages are growing and, uh, you know, prices aren't increasing at a level that, uh, you know, is overall, uh, you know, net repressive? Uh, then we want to take a look at the central banks. And this is, you know, a, a very key element because central banks, not only do they control, you know, the interest rates uh, domestically, uh, you know, obviously for Europe and the United States, those are systemically important, globally uh, important, uh, you know, banks. And they, you know, set interest rates, uh, you know, for many other countries as well and liquidity conditions for many other countries as well. But local central banks also focus on currency policy. There is a lot of currency intervention. They also act as bank regulators. They act as mortgage uh, regulators. They're, you know, looking at all aspects of the economy and often their policy uh, you know, it's a lot richer than just if they decided to, you know, uh, cut, hike, or, you know, leave steady their interest rates. And that's very important to know the direction of that policy, uh, you know, because it's going to just feed through all the economic figures, uh, you know, with a lag. And then finally, the broad balance of payments. We want to get a sense of, uh, you know, is the country, uh, you know, domestically funded? Does it need to be externally funded? Where's the funding coming from? You know, how does the, what, what does the general trade picture look like? So um, when we get all of those, uh, you know, that's, again, kind of uh, maybe too comprehensive for this webcast. But uh, perfect. I think when, uh, you know, you get those five factors, uh, you, you can then start to do easy comparisons. Well, maybe not easy, but at least it gives you a basis for, uh, you know, making those relative value trades, uh, you know, especially against uh, countries that are seemingly, uh, you know, completely different in their makeup and, you know, their cultures, uh, you know, and in, uh, you know, their linkages to, you know, global factors such as commodities. Yeah, so we've talked about developed markets, talked a bit about EM, your framework for thinking about it. Um, something that's kind of risen in popularity maybe over the last decade or so is trying to identify the phrase is frontier markets. Mm -hmm. but what do you think about frontier markets as an investment opportunity? Uh, obviously, they have carry significantly higher risk. 
And how do you think about integrating perhaps those exposures in a portfolio today? If you could also just uh, just identify a few countries that may fall within that category as well, just the way that you think about it. Sure. So when I'm thinking about uh, frontier markets, uh, you know, the, th- the what identifies them is, uh, you know, they're very early on the value chain. You see, uh, you know, very low per capita, you know, GDPs, and you also have very illiquid, uh, you know, uh, financial markets. Um, so countries that jump to mind would be Egypt, Kenya, Nigeria. It's now Nigeria has been going back and forth, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. they've kind of pushed themselves back, in my view. Uh, but a lot of the sub-Saharan African nations, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fall into that uh, category. Now, uh, with lack of liquidity comes, uh, you know, obviously there are, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, potential upside. But lack of liquidity, you know, also there, there's a lot of lack of transparency. And uh, I think you really, if you're going to do uh, frontier investing correctly, uh, you need to do it in the proper vehicle. I don't think, uh, you know, a liquid 40 act fund is the appropriate vehicle. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, you'd want something that's, uh, that can have committed capital that can, you know, withstand uh, cyclical downturns uh, so that you, you know, can just weather, uh, you know, expected, uh, you know, headwinds that are going to come with frontier investing. The other thing you really need to do is you need to get into the country and you need to get into the assets and figure out what is really going on? What is the story? Because, uh, you know, reporting requirements are, you know, tend to be few and far between. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you buy an asset in a frontier market, you're usually stuck with it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, look, a lot of times... You need you frontier know, buyer number two to come on. <laughs> come, come take it off your hands. That's right? exactly right. right. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting when frontier markets, when you start seeing, uh, you know, frontier markets ending up on the page of the Wall Street Journal is, uh, you know, these are the buys that you should be in because these are, you know, the countries that are offering carry. Yeah. I think, you know, that's when the alarm bell should be going off that, you know, we might be, uh, you know, moving into the latter <laughs> stage of, of the business <laughs> cycle yeah. at this yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that was the kind of direction we were going, right? Or you say yeah. hunt for yield. That's right. Um, you know, if, if it has a coupon, uh, people are like, it doesn't really matter what the underlying asset is, right? Until they realize that they're stuck with it. Right. And, uh, you know, then it's, uh, well, it's a whole different story. So I think, uh, you know, frontier, uh, you know, true frontier investing, uh, you know, involves, uh, again, a lot of committed capital and a lot of uh, diligence as far as, uh, you know, researching what you're getting into. Yeah. Maybe getting a little personal here and perhaps a little bit embarrassing, but talk to me about your best rookie mistake. I mean, you've been in this business for so long. You know, you've obviously learned a lot. And just what have you learned along the way in, in terms of uh, from your mistake? Yeah, I like you yeah. calling it a rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. There's no veteran mistake. There have been plenty of mistakes. But, you know, I, I think probably, uh, I, I guess maybe getting into my, you know, my background a little bit, you know, I came from more of the quanti math side and you're from Midwest, Chicago. Right? I'm from Chicago. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? I went to Penn state and Boston university. Okay. And at Boston I did uh, my master's in math. It was actually taught in the math department and they called it math finance, yeah. meaning that a couple of the homework assignments were, you know, <laughs> derived black shoals. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Otherwise it was, you know, yeah. let's, uh, you know, go into stuff stochastic calculus and but uh you know putting that aside when uh i it it took me a while to kind of figure out that uh you know models they 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 can't be relied upon 
Uh, you know, they can give you some information and, uh, you know, they're a good guidepost. Um, but trying to marry yourself to a forecast, trying to put together the perfect, uh, you know, model, uh, you know, I always, uh, you know, it took me a while to, you know, kind of find out that, uh, you know, we're working in uh, the real world. And uh, in the real world, probabilities are not 60-40, they're 50-50, you know, 49-51. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, I, I think, it, especially when I, you know, first started out in my career, I was putting, you know, it, when you start out as a junior analyst, you put a lot of models together, you spend a lot of time with them, you spend a lot of time with the data, which, you know, in your later career, you find out is, uh, you know, generally all revised and, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit meaningless to begin with. Uh, but in doing that, you, you know, you kind of get married to the work that you've done and you feel that, especially coming from an academic uh, setting into a real world setting, you know, that uh, you have some integrity behind this. You put good work in. Uh, you know, I can point to five or ten papers that should say why this should <laughs> yeah, be right. Right. Uh, you know, so sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah I think <laughs> we've all been there. Um, and I, I think that, uh, you know, trying to first get around that uh, and understand what you, you know, what you can get from a quantitative, uh, you know, methodology and, uh, you know, kind of where its limitations are. I think that was... Uh, yeah, it's it's funny you say that because um, I'll give you an anecdote from my academic background is that, you know, I, I was a mathematician as well as you know, um, and I did the similar path. I was in the PhD side trying trying to do applied math and realized I hated physics. I needed another application, <laughs> but it seems at that level, that's pretty much all that's left. And then behold, there's economics out there too, which can relate to finance. So point being is I recall taking the first finance class and get the book on portfolio management. I'm super excited. <laughs> Come back from the bookstore. I'm like, I'm going to be in finance. I'm going to, I'm going to run money. This is going to be great. And so when I, I go, I come back home, I open it up and I see like, Oh, risk management first thing. And then, you know, this being a little bit of a nerd, you know, you open the book first yep. thing, you look at it and I see the standard deviation symbol. And I'm, I was just disappointed. I was so sad because that's, like, all, that's all this is. is risk is the standard deviation. And then, you know, it becomes obviously the bane of one's existence over time is trying to define what risk is. So, uh, no, we really appreciate that component of uh, learning that, you know, we all want this point estimate or precision of a, of a number from a model. And, you know, there's just a lot of human judgment, too, yeah. right? I mean, we use heuristics all the time. Uh, I like to tell people, you know, as we talk about the rise of the robots, you know, the robots are only as good as we program them to think. And, yeah, there's automated learning, and th that stuff is uh, still beyond the kind of my scope. But I do find it quite interesting that it's a very hands-on business. And I think it took me a long time to figure that out as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other, you know, you didn't ask for two, but I'm going to give you another one. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I just want to, I just want to <laughs> second that I made those mistakes as well. well so, I appreciate so hopefully that. that's one of those But the other, I think then as you start to mature in your career and, uh, you know, you, you start putting trades forward, you take a more active role, uh, not getting married to a position. Uh, and I, I think huge. you can be, That's huge. Yeah. you can have all the right reasons and, you know, in your little ledger where you have, uh, you know, why am I, you know, why am I for this trade and what are the risks and, you know, why am I for this trade is uh, 20 items long and the risk is two items long. Well, guess what? Those two items, a lot of times are the ones that overwhelm all 20 and, uh, 
you know, it's still, uh, I mean, it's still a lesson that I think if we're being honest, we're all, you know, learning. But, um, you know, I think that uh, that's, it's, you know, that again, if you want to call it a rookie mistake, but it's more self-realization, I think, that as we mature in this industry. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, I'd say, you know, if we're going to talk about theorems and, you know, <laughs> you know the, the things that we've learned here, I think a corollary to that, too, and that's uh, very difficult for people to learn is... Uh, a trade that works, when to unwind it, yeah. right? That's, that's, that's probably idea. one of the worst. Yeah, that's the thing because you love the <laughs> trade really and you feel good and yeah. you can look at it all the time. You feel so excited. You look at your cost and everything. So I'll put that out there as a corollary for our young investors out there trying to think is uh, also trying to remember what is the catalyst to get out of the trade as well, yeah. when it's working actually. Well, ask yourself every day, would I put the trade on? Yeah. Would I put it on today? Yeah. If I If I had fresh capital and I didn't have the position... What I put it on today, and that's a very tough thing to do because when you have it on and it's working, you'll always say, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> right, and and that's the thing, you know, uh, when you don't do any, when when you don't make a move, that is a move, yeah. right? And so uh, I, I know uh, a lot of times in asset allocation, the way we end the meeting, if we decide that there's no changes to the sector allocation. Uh, the famous words I hear from our chairman is, no move's better than a bad move, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, and we just hope That's that it's helpful not making the bad move. So, I think with that, before you two geek out too much, <laughs> I'm going to get to the, my favorite part yeah. of this, uh, this show. It's called Sherman Says, and I think, Bill, you're familiar with the rules now. Um, so what I'll do is I'll start with Jeff, and I will play a quick game of word association. So for Jeff Sherman, stimulus. Fiscal. Oh, very nice. I was going to say ECB. <laughs> it will never stop. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. We get a little sidetracked. Hey, hey, says it shows you what's on my mind. <laughs> Global debt. I'm sorry, what? Global debt. Global debt? Oh, oh way too large. It's your wheelhouse, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> European Union. Sherman. Mm, fragile. San Francisco Giants. Uh, Candlestick Park. Oh, I thought you were going to say horrible. Chicken he, Bull. He's always trying to hate on my job. <laughs> Chicken Bull. Grizzly. K1. Oh, that's my dish. <laughs> From the Chicken Bull place. <laughs> yeah, for those of you that get a chance to come to L.A. on a Friday, uh, we have a, a nice little farmer's market there, and the Chicken Bull is very popular and um, and actually, Bill has created his own version that is the behemoth and named after the K1 mountain, too. So Yeah, yeah but uh, it, it took several iterations right. to get there. But Was yeah. the K stand for the kahuna, the big kahuna? So, yeah, because yeah, exactly. the, the big kahuna. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last one for each of you, starting with Sherman. Algebra. Quintessential. And Bill, Sherman Show. Lots of fun. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And, uh, again, thanks to Bill Campbell, again, a portfolio manager here at, uh, at DoubleLine. So thanks again for tuning in. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, 
or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.